Please rise as you are able. For the reading of today's scripture from Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion, shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. I will deal with all your oppressors at that time. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you home, at, that, at the time when I gather you, for I will make you renowned and praised among all peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, thank you, Rachel, for reading our lesson this morning, and welcome to each of you. It is so good to be in this warm fellowship, in this place uh, today, on this, the third Sunday of Advent, as the acolytes have led us in lighting the joy candle, the Gaudet candle, as it's called in the Latin, which means rejoice. Uh, a special word of thanks, Chris, to you, to Chris Wyatt for his leadership in our finance area. He is uh, one of the finest lay leaders that we have in the church, and uh, we invite you to respond in the next two or three weeks as we complete uh, this time of, of commitment as we prepare for the ministry uh, of Brentwood United Methodist Church in 2019. If you've been with us the last three weeks, you know that we're continuing this series called All I Want for Christmas Is, with this reading from the prophet Zephaniah, which is, by the way, the Old Testament lection for cycle three for the third year in the reading of the Scriptures. His name means in the Hebrew, God protects. He is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Scriptures. Minor, not meaning qualitative here. It's not because Zephaniah is less important than the major prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and the rest. It is because he is much more succinct in his message than the others. Zephaniah may be a stranger to some of you. Some of you, I dare say, have never read this text. In fact, it's in the back of the Old Testament, and as Malachi does, it has a little glue on the edges of the paper, and so sometimes we go through the Scripture and never actually read these three chapters, these 55 verses. And so Zephaniah may be a stranger to you. If he is, would you allow a moment of introduction? In his signature statement, all the prophets have a signature statement. In chapter 1, verse 1, 
Zephaniah traces his lineage, his ancestry, back four generations. And if you know the prophetic literature, that's unusual. Usually the prophets only go back to father and grandfather, two generations, but Zephaniah goes back four. The text begins with these words, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. I dare say that three of those names probably mean little or nothing to you, but the last name may just ring a bell, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was king of Judah, the southern kingdom, from 727 to 698 BCE. In fact, 2 Kings 18 says, Hezekiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Now, you know as well as I do that kings and rulers in the Old Testament only get one line in their epitaph. Either he did what was right in the sight of God or he did what was evil. There is no in-between in the epitaph. And 2 Kings 18 says there was no one like Hezekiah among all the kings of Judah, either before or after him. And so I want to suggest that Zephaniah may well have been the great-great-grandson of a great-great king. In other words, it's unusual for a prophet, but this prophet was a blue blood. He had royalty in his veins. His ministry actually took place during Josiah's reign. Do you remember the name Josiah? 641 to 610 BCE. Josiah was a boy king who after his daddy's assassination began to reign at the ripe old age of eight. Can you imagine a third grader being the king of Judah? And during his rule, the temple, you remember, was renovated, and the high priest, whose name was Hilkiah, while cleansing, while cleaning up the temple, found a part of the Bible, a part of the Torah that had been lost. He discovered the book of Deuteronomy. And the recovery of Scripture brought about reform to the nation, which Zephaniah supported, but it would not be sustained After Josiah's death, his boys did not follow in his father's footsteps. They lacked his devotion, and both of them, Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim, did what was evil in the sight of God. And the nation went south, took a turn for the worse. The leadership, says Zephaniah, was corrupt. It was unjust. The temple was compromised. They were worshiping all kinds of gods, and the people became complacent. In fact, the mantra of that age, you can find it in Zephaniah 1 verse 12, they used to say, the Lord will neither do good nor will he do harm. In other words, in the eyes of the chosen people in this context, God was becoming, at least in their minds, irrelevant, inconsequential. Something like that, I think, has happened in our postmodern age. We have a name for it. It's called secularism. A secularized society is one that has determined to make God socially irrelevant. Secularism restricts the relevance of God to the private personal sphere only. 
This has created what Richard John Newhouse, the Catholic scholar, called the naked public square. That is to say that God may be important personally, but not so much socially, not so much culturally, and certainly not nationally. God may be alive and well in your hearts privately, but publicly he's dead. And sometimes even in the church, there is a form of functional atheism that exists where we sort of tip our hat to God and then go on our merry way as though we're on our own, secularism. In C.S. Lewis's classic book, The Abolition of Man, Dr. Lewis notes that when God is removed from the public domain, we lose our capacity to make moral decisions about the world. Furthermore, Dr. Lewis says, if we are stripped of the ability to believe that some things are universally and ultimately true, then everything in life becomes a matter of personal opinion. And this in turn, says Dr. Lewis, creates men without chests and women without nerve. This is the context in which Zephaniah prophesied. I don't know if you saw it, I read the other day, the Illinois Capitol Rotunda has a new Christmas display this year. Alongside the nativity and the menorah stands an arm holding an apple, I don't know if you can see it, holding an apple with a snake coiled around it, and the display is called Snaketivity. It was donated by the Satanic Temple of Chicago. The sign in front you can see says, knowledge is the greatest gift. The spokesman for the temple said the arm actually represents Eve in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve disobeyed God, you remember, by eating from the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And said the spokesperson about the display, we see Satan as the hero to the story, not the villain, because he's spreading knowledge. Not that we actually believe in Satan, he said, but we do believe the fallen angel is a metaphor for rebellion in the face of religious tyranny, end of quote. Now, that's an interesting interpretation of the story. And I'm all for free speech and certainly for the First Amendment, but sometimes I worry about a culture that has become so complacent that we can no longer discern good from evil, or worse, we call evil good and good evil. I've noticed that sometimes, even in the clergy, even in the church, we speak of God as though God is basically harmless, innocuous, and only here to improve our self-esteem and make us feel better about ourselves. And I can hear Zephaniah thundering in the streets of Jerusalem and Washington and New York and Nashville. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away humans and animals, birds and fish. I will make the wicked stumble. I will cut off humanity from the face of the earth, says the Lord. Try putting that on a Christmas card. Well, at least he's an equal opportunity offender. He doesn't just go after the chosen ones in Judah. 
He goes after everybody. Now, it's no wonder that we don't read this stuff because you know as well as I do, if I were to announce a New Year's series in January on the prophet Zephaniah, worship attendance would be cut in half. Chris Wyatt would have to come to the floor again in January. And the truth is, Zephaniah sounds a little bit more like the Grinch who stole Christmas than the prophet who predicted it. And yet the inclusion of his message in the Old Testament reminds us of a universal truth. God is a God of love, yes, but God is also a God of justice. They are two sides of the same coin. Love without justice is permissiveness, and justice without love is legalism. It was Cornel West who said justice is what love looks like in public. And so after a steady diet of this judgment preaching designed to bring about repentance, finally the last chapter, there are 55 verses, the last seven verses turn to joy. The last word of God is never judgment, it's redemption, it's joy. Indeed, says the prophet, God himself is going to intervene on our behalf in history I want you to listen to the verses immediately prior to the text that Rachel read. Verse 9, at the time of my coming, says the Lord, I will change the speech of the people. It's interesting. It doesn't start with action. It starts with rhetoric, a change in the rhetoric. It reminds me of God's creation. It begins with the word affirmation, it is good. And when God comes, it begins with our language. That's an important thing. It begins with our tone. It begins with discourse. Says God, I will change the speech of the people to pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of God and serve Him in one accord. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of all the deeds by which you have rebelled against me For I will remove from you the prideful ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. For I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, and they will seek refuge in the name of the Lord, the remnant of Israel. They shall do no wrong, and they shall utter no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. Then they will, listen to this, then they will pasture and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. It reminds me a little bit of Luke 2, doesn't it, you, when the angel appears to shepherds keeping their flock pastured by night, and the first word out of the angel's mouth is, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Even the announcement, the anticipation of God's coming, the thought of it, changes the tone of Zephaniah and the mood of the people from complacency to expectation and joy. And then verse 14, I love this. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. You hear the term of endearment, daughter. In other words, he no longer refers to his children as sinners, reprobates, offenders, but as daughter Rejoice, O daughter Jerusalem, for the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has, in other words, exonerated you. He has liberated, pardoned, forgiven you. 
and he has turned away your enemies. The king of Israel is now in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. And here's the key verse today, verse 17. I love this verse. And God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Did you know that God sings? Malachi taught us last week that God gets weary. Some of us didn't know that, but God does get weary of sin, corruption, complacency, and justice. But did you know that God also sings? And what is it that causes God to sing? Zephaniah says it's unconditional agape love. It's love for you. It's love for me. I've often wondered what does it sound like when God sings, and then I realized I think we already know Two weeks ago in the narthex, as the youth encircled us with their carols and candles, we heard God's voice singing over us. On a Wednesday night when our children came before us, last week on Sunday when Dana Gary and James Wells and then later an Irish tenor came before us, we actually heard the voice of God exulting over us, singing over us in love. In fact, tonight, if you come, you'll hear the orchestra and the musicians, and you'll hear the voice of God exulting over His people. God's infinite love sounds a lot like music. And just the anticipation of His intervening presence is like music to our ears, and the thought of it brings joy. The French Philosopher and Jesuit priest Teilhard de Chardin was right when he said the infallible proof of the presence of Christ is joy. You know, it's no accident that the very first miracle of Jesus, according to John's gospel, happened at a wedding party when the wine ran out at the reception and Jesus turned water into wine and wine is the symbol of joy. It's the infallible proof It's a fruit of the Spirit that comes right after love is joy. Now, I know especially at this time of year that when you hear a sermon on joy, some of us are feeling alone this close to Christmas. There are some who no doubt are feeling as though the wine has run out, as though every day is like night. But this morning, God is calling you daughter and son and he's in our midst. You're not alone. You've never been alone. The psalmist says in chapter 30, weeping may remain for the night, but joy, joy comes in the morning. When I first came to be pastor in 2013, one of our little girls in this church, one of our families had a sick child. She was diagnosed at the age of two and a half battling leukemia. People all over were praying. They prayed for two and a half years, and God healed her with the help of our friends at Vanderbilt. It's been five years now, but I still remember after remission that the family had requested a prayer service before, but now that she was healed, they requested a praise service. So many people had prayed, and God had replied, 
And so in the chapel, we had this praise service complete with pony rides, balloons outside, of course, and the Chick-fil-A cow. (laughs) I'll never forget it. And we celebrated and we cried and we laughed and we thanked God. She's 10 years old today, and I find it ironic that her name is Grace. I have to tell you, whenever I see grace, I can't help but feel joy. And I feel it this morning as we experience grace anew. We've lit the third candle this morning. It's different from the others. I don't know if you've noticed. It's not purple. It's not because we ran out of purple candles. Purple is the sign of repentance, penitence, sorrow for sin. That is a part of the Advent journey. But today the color is pink. It means joy because in our waiting, just in the anticipation, the thought of his coming creates an unspeakable joy. One word and I'm finished. Some of you know the name Dorothy Sayers, no doubt. Christian writer, great thinker, orthodox thinker, the Christian faith in the early 20th century, was a contemporary of Dr. C.S. Lewis, Charles Williams, and others. Dorothy Sayers wrote a series of detective novels focused on a fictional character named Lord Peter Whimsey. He was an aristocrat detective from the 1930s who solved all kinds of crimes, all kinds of mysteries. And Dorothy Sayers wrote an entire series of novels about Lord whimsy. About halfway through the novels, a woman shows up in her writing in this series. The new character she writes about is named Harriet Vane. She is a female mystery writer in the book. She is one of the first women to go through Oxford University, and Harriet and Lord Whimsy fall in love. Up to that point in the novels, uh, her Mr. Whimsy had been unhappy, miserable, and was a broken bachelor until she showed up and her love began to heal his broken soul. What's interesting about this character is Sayers, like Harriet in the story, was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. She too was a mystery novel writer, and Sayers looks at her lead character, Lord Whimsy, and sees that he needs someone to help him. And so who did she put in the book? It's herself. She is a detective novelist. She is a woman. She is one of the first women to go to Oxford, and she writes herself into the story. She looks into the world that she has created, and she falls in love with the lead character, Lord Whimsy. And she wrote herself into the story in order to save him. Does that sound familiar to anybody? (laughs) We have a name for it. It's called gospel. A just and loving God who is so heartsick over the world of his own making 
that he by grace writes himself into the story. Word becomes flesh so that he can save us. And because of that grace, we light a pink candle because there's joy. We're eight days away. Some of you are making up your wish list more than anything else today. More than anything else, I wish you joy. Because I know that Nehemiah was right. The joy of the Lord is our strength. May it be so for you. In Jesus' name, amen.